I want to start by, if you've got, got your outline, go ahead and grab it. It's a front and back today. There's a lot in here today. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and I know that you only had you know, one less hour of sleep, and so that'll be a little bit harder. The, the content that we're going to talk about is difficult, just so you know. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to kind of engage and kind of find that caffeine that uh, hopefully is in your body so that way you can really be engaged with us as we dive in together uh, this morning. Uh, I want to start by just telling you about a story, a true story. There's a guy named David Hagler, and he uh, was an umpire and a referee. He did this part-time along with his other job, but he wrote in the L.A. Times that he was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado. He was pulled over by a policeman. The police officer came up to the window, uh, asked him what was going on, and uh, took his license, his registration, went back to the police car, came back, gave him a ticket. The guy was trying to beg him, hey, listen, I really, I really drive good all the time. You can see that I don't have a big record. Uh, I don't want my insurance rates to go sky high, so would you please not write me this ticket? He begged for grace, got none. In fact, the officer said, hey, listen, if you have a problem with this, I'll see you in court. Last time he saw him. Until the first game of the first season... Of, of, of softball. David was an umpire, and the very first batter that came up was this police officer. He recognized the guy. The police officer recognized him. police officer gets in the batting, and the batter's box is swinging a little bit and says, hey, how did it go with your ticket? And David Hagler said, if I were you, I'd swing at everything. That's what he said. I want to follow up what Mark said about just some mind-boggling cases that are out there. It is amazing today, the litigation that happens in our world on just the craziest of things. And the first one is this. PETA, if you've ever heard of PETA, they're an animal-loving organization that loves to protect the rights of animals. They held an anti-hunt protest in 2001 in New Jersey. And they were defending the rights for deer to live. They didn't want them to be hunted. And the irony of it all was on the way home, two of them were, were in a car together. And as they were driving, they hit a deer and killed it. And what they then did was get a lawyer. And they tried to sue the New Jersey Division of, of Fish and Wildlife because it was their fault that this deer ran onto the road. And the case was dismissed. And all of the hunters in the room said what? Amen, right? Uh, Austin Aiken. Sued NBC for $2.5 million. I don't know if you remember the show Fear Factor, but he was watching Fear Factor, and he claims that it caused him suffering, injury, and great pain. He was watching this episode where uh, the contestants were actually eating parts of rats, and it made him dizzy, lightheaded. He, it caused him to vomit, and he ran into a doorway and hit his head, and the judge said the case was frivolous, and it was thrown out. In 2000, Clanitha Peters sued Universal Studios for $15,000. She claimed to have suffered extreme fear, mental anguish, emotional distress due to visiting Universal Studios' Halloween Horror Nights haunted house, okay? Which she said was too scary. Wah. Anyway, last one. Let me give you this one. This is awesome. It's, it's really not, but it's... Uh, in 1999, David Dukes, a 27-year-old man from Florida, hatched this clever plan so that he could... One finally live out his lifelong dream that was on his bucket list, which was to swim with a, with a killer whale. Okay? So he, he buys his ticket, goes into SeaWorld, hangs out all day, and then goes into hiding and, and actually stays in the park after it closes. And shortly after it closes, he dove into the tank with a killer whale, fulfilling his dream. As you can figure, Daniel was killed by the killer whale. Okay? His parents proceeded to sue SeaWorld because they did not display public warnings that the whale Tilikum could kill people, even though it was a killer whale. They also claimed that the whale was wrongly portrayed as friendly because of the stuffed animals in the gift shop. How about that? If you've ever heard of these comedians, they say, here's your sign, 
Here's your sign. Anyway, hey, this series has been very heavy, and I wanted to just give us a moment of brevity as we begin to talk about trials. We, we just kind of talked about some frivolous ones. Today, we're going to talk about one that is unbelievable. It's very intense. And I want to pick up where we left off last week. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you can remember, if you were here, you know this. He's just left a meal. He's, he's now with his disciples. He, he's talked to them about the idea that he's going, to be, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to lay down his life to redeem all of mankind. And he's there with his closest friends. And he asks these guys to stay up and pray with him and, and, and to keep watch because he knows that Judas is coming. And, and the reality is these men just continue to fall asleep. He wakes him up. He, he goes back and prays. He goes back and wakes him up. He goes back to pray. He goes back and wakes him up for the third time. And in his prayer, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, sweating drops of blood, a real condition, he asks the Lord, Father, if there's another way other than taking this cup, which is your wrath for all of mankind, for the sins of the world, if there's another way, let's do it. But every time these nine words, but Father, not my will, your will be done. And the reality is the Father did not take this cup away. He said, this is your cup. And Jesus said, this is my, my mission, and I'm going to finish it. So that's where we are. And then Judas, a- after that third time of prayer, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, awake, our, the betrayer is here. And so Jesus, Judas rolls up with a, a battalion of, 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 of soldiers 600 deep, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. This is a man that spent three and a half years with him who watched Jesus teach, who watched him heal, who watched him care for people, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. He's taken into custody, he's probably handcuffed, probably, probably shoved and pushed around, maybe thrown down to make sure that they could get him. And after that, all the disciples flee. They desert Jesus in that moment. It's in the middle of the night, somewhere between midnight and, and five in the morning, uh, that we're going to talk about these specific areas that we actually looked at and read about in our 2020 time. I hope you've been following along with us. But the, the passages that we're going to look at, and we're going to kind of look at these from a chronological standpoint, so that way you kind of know. And so it's going to feel like we're jumping around a little bit, so that way you can kind of see the order of how these things shake out. But it's Matthew 26 and 27, Mark 14 and 15, Luke 22, 23, and John 18 and 19. So we're going to go through a lot of, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. And again, I know you've got one less hour of sleep, but try to stay focused, write down the things that you feel like God's asking you to write down. We'll kind of really zero in on what God has to say to us in the middle of Jesus in the midst of these trials. And so Jesus is led to the palace of the high priest. And we'll take a moment just to kind of define some characters that are in the story. The first one is Caiaphas. We met him last week. He's the high priest. Rome put him in position, and he would stay in that position for seven years. His father-in-law, Annas, is actually there as well. He probably lived with Caiaphas. He was the original, he was the high priest before him, and he was also a high priest for 20 years. And he's actually the power broker. He's the one who has the most influence. And so when they, the guards come knocking on the gate, knocking on the door, it's Annas who actually answers the door and then tells Caiaphas to go get the Sanhedrin. And so they go to get the, he goes after the 70 Sanhedrin, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Now, what you need to know is that in this situation, from here on out, no one's going to play by the rules. No one's going to play fair. It's going to be ugly. This is, this, is a, this is a strategy bent toward killing Jesus by all means necessary. That is what is going to happen. And there are, three, there, there, there are six trials that Jesus will go through in a matter of hours. Three of them are religious trials of some sort, and three of them are political trials of some sort. And in your notes, this is the first thing, there were nine breaches of justice. Okay? in the middle of these six trials. And I wanted to put these here so that way you could see them. The first is this. Jesus was arrested through a bribe. That's illegal. You couldn't do that through blood money. 
He's arrested without a clear charge. That's a huge breach of injustice in any court, in any culture. Trials could not be held at night or during feast days in their culture in first century Judaism. And it's in the middle of the night of the festival of all festivals. That's the reality of what's going on. They, re, they will use physical force to intimidate Jesus during the trial. They will beat him up. They will mock him. They will, they will beat him within inches of his life throughout this, this, these trials. False witnesses will offer, offer conflicting testimony about him. And you know this. If you've watched any case, if you watch anything, whether you've watched even some of the stuff on TV about OJ or, or about the making of a murder, when, when there's conflicting testimony, it becomes false. It ends up getting thrown out and not... In this case, Jesus will not be given a chance to cross-examine his witnesses. They will spill out lies. Jesus will never get an opportunity to respond. The high priest never asked for a vote from the Sanhedrin, which is their policy, which is their system. They bypass that. They blow past that because they have a plan, and that is to kill Jesus. Jesus is taken to Pilate. The charges against him will change. It's unethical and confusing. And he will be convicted and executed on the same day. Now, what you must know about the Roman government is that they were swift in their justice, but they never did that in this short period of time with anybody other than Jesus. So in your notes, the interrogation begins. While waiting for Caiaphas and the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, Annas begins to question Jesus, and he he says, hey, what have you been teaching these people, Jesus? And what's interesting is as you look back, two days before this, Jesus was in the temple teaching, and Annas is there. Doesn't ask a whole lot of questions, doesn't try to trap, trap Jesus, but now he's in this place where he's now asking Jesus, what is it that you've been teaching as if he didn't know? So Jesus responds in John 18, 20, and 21. He says, I've spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I've taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I've said. In that moment, John 18, 22, it says, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way that you answer the high priest? Now, just want to remind you, Annas is not the high priest, okay? But from here, it's already beginning. The intimidation is happening for Jesus. Look at what happens next. Write this in your notes. False witnesses, hard questions, and Jesus' response, okay? Jesus whisked off to another wing at the palace where Caiaphas brings in the Sanhedrin. A group of false witnesses begin to immediately launch into a verbal assault, pointing the finger at Jesus, saying lots of things. Matthew 26, 59 through 62, the chief priests and the, the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. That's interesting. Though many false witnesses came forward, finally two declared this. This fellow said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, obviously, if you know a little bit about the scriptures, he's not literally talking about the temple. He's talking about his body that would be destroyed and that it would be raised in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? It's a petty accusation. Matter of fact, Jesus actually says nothing. He doesn't respond. Oftentimes throughout this this morning as we talk about the trials and the things that are coming his way, Jesus doesn't do a lot of responding. And it just goes back to this prophecy that Isaiah talked about that was 700 years before Jesus would ever walk the, the planet and actually be in this place. Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears. He's silent. He did not open his mouth. 
And as a leader, I can respect Caiaphas for what he's about to say. He's like, you know what? We need to get to this. Tell me the truth. I'm going to be really straightforward with you. I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore. And so he asked this in, in Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. The time for leading questions and veiled references and subtle suggestions is over. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus boldly looks at him and says, Yes, I am he. Caiaphas is frustrated. He's now angered. He tears his clothes. He finally has a reason to kill Jesus, to do away with this man who posed the greatest threat to, his, to Caiaphas' political and religious career. What motivated Caiaphas with such hatred and animosity and ill will? The same things that motivate us today. Jealousy, ambition, pride, insecurity, or a false sense of security that power brings to a man. In your notes, the beatings continue. The palace guards begin to play a game, and I'll put the word on the screen. I won't even uh, try it today. It's, the, it's in loose. It's called pop the prophet, which just means they're going to beat on Jesus. Right? They use a word called repizo, which simply means to hit him with sticks or clubs. And so they're beginning to punch him in the face, hit him with clubs, and they begin to say, hey, if you're the son of God, if you're God, who is it that's beating you? Who is it that's hitting you in your face right now? Who am I, Jesus? And they keep, they keep doing that. Jesus doesn't play the game. He doesn't respond to them. He takes his beating without a solitary word. And then when the guards finished, again, Isaiah said this, at this moment, Jesus has been beaten beyond human likeness. Isaiah 52, 14. This is powerful. This is, I don't want us to miss this. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being. And his form was marred beyond human likeness. Which means when you looked at Jesus, you couldn't tell if that was a man or not. That's how bad he was beaten. Prophecy fulfilled. Look what happens to one of Jesus' closest friends. His name is Peter. And you know it's Peter stands at a distance. I won't spend time here, but the reality is when we, when we stand at a distance from Jesus, we get ourselves in trouble. We get ourselves in, in a bad place. We've got to be close to Jesus. Jesus longs for us to be close to him. And, and, and here's the deal. Jesus is about to be taken into the palace, and you need to know that there were two other trials that were about to happen. And even the best script writers in Hollywood couldn't have written this this way. Peter is standing outside the gates. He's wanting to know what's going to happen to Jesus, but he's, he's got a low profile. He doesn't want people to know that he's one of his followers. He's one of his disciples. And so his head's down, maybe a robe, his, his hood's over his head. He's standing near a fire, and all these people are around. They're all gathered to see what's going to happen happened to Jesus just as Peter was and eventually someone walks up to Peter because they recognize him or maybe they heard his accent they said hey you're not from around here aren't you one of Jesus followers aren't you one of the men that that were that were that was with him for the last last several years and each time Peter had to lie stutter shrink back backtrack I have no idea who you're talking about I don't even know this man keep in mind this is Peter one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, one of the three, he had 12, but he would take three with him. It was Peter, James, and John. He would bring them close to him at key moments or bring them to places that he wanted to show them, even outside of the other nine. It's Peter. It's Peter who saw Jesus walking on the water 
and, and, and he asks Jesus, hey, if that's you, Jesus, invite me out on the water. And so Jesus does. It's Peter who walked on the water with Jesus. It's Peter who just the day before when all these things were going down and Jesus says, hey, one of you is going to betray me and you're all going to desert me. Peter goes, looks, looks at Jesus and I and goes, hey, listen, if they all fall away, I won't fall away. I will give my life for you, Jesus. Now in the heat of the moment, when the pressure mounts, Peter caves. He doesn't stand up. He shrinks back three different times. Matthew writes this in Matthew 26, 74, 75. Then Peter began to call down curses, and he swore, I don't know this man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken the day before. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus said this would happen the day before, prophecy fulfilled. Verse 75, and then Peter went outside and wept bitterly. I bet he did. Can you imagine being Peter? And, and here's the question for us today. Have you ever been there? You ever been in that spot where, you know what, you, you fell in love with Jesus, you, Jesus changing your life, you love Jesus, you live for Jesus, you're fired up about Jesus, and then all of a sudden in a moment someone asks you something about your faith or, or challenges you in some way, and instead of standing up or moving forward or moving into this conversation, you shrink back, you, you step away, you, you act like you don't know, you, you hide your head, you, 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 cut, your, you cut yourself off and, and you retreat. Been in that spot a couple times. And when I leave in those moments, I just, I, I, I hate it. I feel guilty. This is the God who gave his life for me. Why would I not stand for him? He stood for me. This is how Peter must have felt. And he wept bitterly. In the last three and a half years of Peter's life, he's, he's, he's been a friend of Jesus. Jesus called him away from this fishing boat, gave him a new life, said, I want, I want to use your life to, to make a difference in people. He learned from Jesus. He witnessed all of Jesus' miracles. Peter is the one who proclaimed, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And now, denies ever even knowing this man. Instead of stepping up, Peter stands at a distance. In your notes, Judas and his inner turmoil. Courtney talked about this for just a second in her, her piece. Judas has a conversation with the chief priests and the elders. He had a moment of clarity and Matthew 27, 1-5, early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made the, their plans on how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. We're going to talk about that in a second. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was being condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned. He said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Translation, I was wrong, shouldn't have done this, I don't believe this, I don't want to do this anymore, please take this back. And here's their response. What is that to us? This is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away, and he hung himself. I just don't think G Judas ever really counted the cost until he saw Jesus being beaten and shackled and being condemned. In your notes, Pilate and politics is your next blank. Pilate and politics. I don't know about you. I am so tired of all this political stuff. Are you, anybody else here? I mean, you have to cheer, but I'm just so tired. I'm tired of all this stuff back and forth. I'm tired of all these rallies, and I know that they were all just here in Kansas City yesterday. Who cares? And let me say this. Not just political 
as in, as in Democrat-Republican politics. I don't like politics of any kind, and I'm sure you're probably this way as well, where, where you see this happening. You may see it at work. You may see it at school. You may see it in your job. You may see it in lots of different arenas, but the reality is people do things not because it's right, but because it's, it's just the, the right thing to do with other people, you kind of go along to, to get along. It's things done out of fear or self-interest instead of what's right. It even happens in some churches. And here's the, the reality. I hate the smell of politics in anything, in any arena. And that kind of politics are, are deadly to any organization. But there's a lot that's going on right here. Jesus has been led to the palace of the high priest, then to the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like our Supreme Court. And then the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, begin to, to come up with these charges that are trying to get it to stick in a Roman court. He's destroyed the temple and blasphemy. But that that's not enough for Pilate. So Pilate begins to have this conversation with him. And what's interesting about Pilate is that Pilate is extremely political. He knows how to play the game. He's been elevated to procurator or governor of Palestine by the emperor Tiberius. And there wasn't a more despised area on the planet for Rome than Palestine. It would be like being called the ambassador to Afghanistan. No one wanted those headaches. Nobody. And what's interesting about Pilate is I've kind of did some history, some study about him, is he made some poor decisions along the way. And Jewish leaders uh, had threatened him, basically. Pilate had forced the Jews to put images of Caesar in their temples. Historians have also written about the fact that Pilate had stolen money from the temple treasury, from God's people, to build roads and aqueducts. And he had ruthlessly even killed many, many Jewish leaders without even batting an eye. So all of a sudden, these Jewish leaders show up at his gate with, with Jesus. Pilate knows that he's in for a long day. Before they can even build their case, here's what he says in John 18, 31. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I don't want to have anything to do with this. It's not my deal. In other words, don't waste my time with your petty arguments. But Pilate wasn't ready for the response in verse 31. But we have no right to execute anyone, inferring that he was the only one that had the right to do that. And Pilate's ears perk up. They've gotten his attention, and they begin to share with him three different reasons that are bogus that Jesus should be crucified. The first one was this. He was subversive, meaning that he was trying to undermine the Roman government by leading a revolt, that he was going to try to overtake Rome by a military front and by, by soldiers and people. And if you know anything about the last couple of weeks that we've been talking about this, that wasn't Jesus' heart at all. In fact, he said the opposite. I am not a king of this world. This is not what I'm about. I come in peace. And then they said he refuses to pay taxes, which is really, really funny because it wasn't that long before that when he was in the temple, he was asked about taxes. And Jesus simply said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And then the last one, he claims to be a king. This one will stick, gateway. In a Roman world, there was no other king but Caesar. And anyone who claimed otherwise would be met with swift resistance from the Roman government. Pilate was no lightweight intellectually. He knew their law, and he knew that these Jewish leaders had had him in a bind, and they were going to blackmail him, basically saying this, if you don't kill Jesus, the word is going to get out to Caesar that you let a man who claimed to be king go free. So you're on the hook. Let me read for you this private conversation. Jesus takes, Pilate takes Jesus into this, this, this inner courtyard and he has this conversation in John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, asked for him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, is that your own idea? Or did you talk about, did you talk about, did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate said? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? 
Jesus responds, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but by now, my kingdom is of another place. It's bigger than this. Verse 37, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Anyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate says a very big question that is even true in our world today. What is truth? What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With that, he went out to the Jews and gathered them there and said, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. To his credit, he will try to let Jesus off the hook ten different times. I find no basis in this man. People get worked into a frenzy. They yell back at Pilate. They hurl insults at Jesus. And again, it says that Jesus remains silent. But during this verbal volleyball match back and forth between Pilate and the crowds, this Jewish leader said in Luke 23, 5, but they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. That's, that's key here in a second. And has come all the way up here to Jerusalem for us. And boom, the light went on for Pilate. Galilee. Galilee's not my, in my jurisdiction. That's Herod's jurisdiction. So we're going to send him to Herod. So with that, Jesus is then sent to Herod for trial number five, a man who was handpicked by the Romans to be the king over these people. The Jewish people hated Herod. They hated him, despised him. In fact, this Herod is the same Herod that killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had him beheaded. Jesus is very aware of that. This is by far an interesting encounter because the king of the Jews is going to meet the real king, of the Jews. His hair circles Jesus, tries to size him up. He begins to ask him, hey, heard all these things about you. Heard about all these miracles. You know, the blind you can see, the deaf can hear, the people who can't speak can speak. You've even raised people from the dead. Do a miracle for me, Jesus. Come on, David Blaine. Come on, Carbonate, Nero. Do these these, these miracles so we can see who you are. Show me something, Jesus. And he gives them no miracles. He responds in no way, not a single word. Herod gets frustrated, takes off his purple robe, puts it on Jesus, has Jesus sit on his throne, and his people begin to mock him and beat him some more, spitting in his face. Then eventually Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. It's this crazy ordeal. No one wants to take ownership. But it comes to Pilate, and here's it in your notes. Choose a man. We'll get there in a second. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's now frustrated by the fact that this verdict's going to end up landing on him, and Pilate knows he has to think on his feet quickly, and, and, and so he does something. In every festival, he, he does something for their people. He actually takes a, a criminal and says, a couple criminals, and says, hey, you, you choose a man that we're going to free during this festival. And so they bring a man named Barabbas, right? His name means son of the father. Ironic, right? The son of the father and the son of the father are standing in front and the fact is Barabbas was someone that was a murderer, he was an insurrectionist, he led a revolt against Rome, all these people, you know, a lot of this, these crowds probably liked Barabbas, but, but in Pilate's mind he's probably thinking, you know what, the reality is Jesus is nothing like that. They're going to let Jesus go and I can go home. That's his hope. So who is it that you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? Pilate's blown away by the response. It says in Luke 23, 18, Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill Jesus and release Barabbas to us. 
Pilate's wife hears all of this and she goes up to him. That wouldn't have happened in any scenario, but she has boldness as a woman in that day, in that setting, to walk up to Pilate and say, hey, listen, I had a dream last night about Jesus. You don't want to be anywhere near this. You don't want to be responsible for his death. The Romans were very superstitious. They believed in good luck, bad luck, karma, all of that. And she's saying, hey, stay away from Jesus. So Pilate, not knowing what to do, shouts back, what shall we do then? What do you want me to do with Jesus? The jury, this crowd, with one unified piercing voice, yells, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Six trials, not one of them would have a charge against him that would be valid or true. Not one of these charges would stick, yet the crowds continue to shout, crucify him, crucify him. The pressure mounts. Pilate takes a bowl, washes his hands, says, this isn't on me, this is on you, even though it is on him. And he says, let him be crucified. Crucify him, crucify him. I don't know how those words sit with you, but it's, it's just amazing that three weeks before this, as Jesus rolled in to Jerusalem on a donkey, you hear, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now these people yell, crucify Jesus. Why? What is it about Jesus that was deserving of such a hor- horrific death? What is it? Was it because he, he prayed with children and blessed children? Was it because he raised a, a widow's son so that one day he would be able to provide and, and take care of his mother? What is it that, that caused Jesus such harm and such, such, such hatred? Was it because he shared meals with people that were on the outs, outcast of society, women who slept around or white-collar criminals like Zacchaeus? What is it that, 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 that people had this venom that was spilling out, crucifying? Was it because he ch- touched lepers and healed people with diseases? Or is it because he said such awful things as, as love your neighbors, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you? What was it that caused all this hatred? I mean, would the world really be a much better place without Jesus in it? All kinds of applications today. Maybe this is yours. If you've ever been in a situation where, you know what, someone cried foul or felt like life wasn't fair, Jesus understands you. If you've ever had to take the high road, you've ever had to do the right thing, regardless of the fact that everybody else is going this direction, but you're going this direction, Jesus can identify with you. Or maybe it's the power of obedience and trust, not just when it's easy, but when there are grave circumstances in your life. All of a sudden, you're in a place where you go, you know what, I'm going to keep doing this. Not my will, your will be done. Jesus can identify with us when we've been rejected or deserted or betrayed by those who are close to us. You know, it's interesting. In writing messages, and again, this is just kind of a side note, I love to kind of bring it all together for you. I love to tie all the loose ends up. I love to kind of make it feel like, you know what, this, okay, it all drives into this one place, and the reality is, I can't do that today. I can't. The next couple of weeks will hopefully even build on where we've been, but the reality is there's just too much there. There's too much that's undone. There's too much that doesn't make sense from a human standpoint. The reality is these are big pieces, and maybe for you today, maybe your, your takeaway is this. I felt betrayed. I felt deserted. I felt like, you know what, everything was stacked against me, and the fact is Jesus can identify with you. 
Maybe you felt the, the pain of loss or, or you felt deserted or you've, you've walked through life right now and it's pretty lonely. The fact is, Jesus understands you. You know, in Hebrews, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus has been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. And here's the reality. Jesus has also experienced everything that we'll ever go through from a circumstance standpoint. All of it. And the reality is, what's interesting is that when we go through things, you know, it's, it's great to be able to talk to someone who, who we can trust and care about. It's greater when we can talk to someone that we trust that has actually been through what we've gone through. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have a God, we just sang about Him, we just worshiped Him, and, and the reality is we're talking about Him today that actually knows what it is that we go through. The storms of life, He is not someone who's not been dripping wet through them. He understands. He's walked through them Himself, and He's willing to walk through them with us. He even tells us this in Matthew 11, 28-30. He says this, I want you to come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's saying, hey, I want you to team up with me. I want you to walk with me. I want to walk with you. And the reality is, I will then put this burden, your burden under my shoulders and we will walk together. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, rest for your souls. See, it's not just that Jesus would give you rest from your circumstances, but Jesus in this moment, in the midst of this Passion Week, would actually give his life on a cross so that your sin could be paid for, so that you could find rest for your souls. We don't have to worry about the, the guilt and sin and shame of our past anymore. It's been nailed. It says, it's the same it's the song that we sang. It's as dead, it's as dead as our sin. That's the reality. The God that we're talking about today is a God who wants to walk with us. A God that says, come to me as you are. You don't have to fix things in your life. You have to start doing this and then stop doing this. His invitation to us is always the same. Come as you are. And let me live in your life. Let me come and live inside of you. And let me begin to do the transformational work that only I can do. You see, he can do for us what we were powerless to do on our own, which is to forgive us completely, to love us unconditionally, and to give us strength to persevere through whatever this world throws at us. That's the God that we serve. 